plausible that he existed, that he rose again. We're going to talk about that this morning. Now, when we think about somebody's life, we mark a life with a beginning and an end with two things, a birth certificate, the day you're born, and then the day you die, a death certificate, the time of death. Time of birth and the time of death. And in between, that tells you that person lived on earth, existed. And what goes on in between can have a lasting impact or may not have a big imprint on human history. And yet, uh, within that, we also determine, you know, how old we are. But to show you how much truth is up for grabs today in our world, I, I found this little court case that went on over in Europe about in 2018. Emil Radaban, a Dutch man, asked for the courts to legally change his age. He was 69, but he said, I feel 49, I look 49. And quite frankly, being labeled as a 69-year-old is hindering my online dating profile. (laughs) And he said, nobody can look at me on Tinder. They just flick past me. I want to be labeled as 49. And the judge came to the conclusion. He says, "Um, Mr. Rattlebland is uh, at liberty to feel 20 years younger than his real age and to act accordingly. But changing his legal documents would have undesirable legal and societal implications, which he was not ready to unleash. I mean, I'm sure he experienced some discrimination because of his age, or he thought he did, but, um, you know, we can't change some things. They're just truth. They're just facts about us. As much as we want to say all truth is up for grabs, there is truth that is knowable and tangible in this world. And a more challenging question to ask of uh, somebody is, you know, it's how do we know anybody existed in ancient times? Now, outside of rulers and kings, which are a little more easy to verify historically, Jesus, if we understand correctly, really lived a peasant's life. And that's like 98% of the population at that time. How do we know they existed? We didn't have the documentation, photographs, things that we have today. Um, How do you know that this man, Jesus Christ, was born? And so we look at the Gospels and we see this and and we see that uh, Jesus came And we can look even in the Gospel of Luke, and it says, uh, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all should be registered. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, Joseph and Mary. Uh, Joseph was from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. And so he had to return to Bethlehem, the city of David, because of his lineage was from the house of David. And so he went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And so Jesus was born. And then we see, as we talked about last week, that on the cross, Jesus breathed his last And he said, it is finished. And then he died. They took him down and they buried him. And so uh, Jesus lived and Jesus died. Uh, That's a key point. 
that we need to come to. And uh, there's a man by uh, the name of Norman Geisler. He's a theologian. He, he defends the gospel. And he took upon himself to begin to collect documents and studies. Not to critique them all, but just to collect documents and studies by people who are skeptical, by atheists, by anyone who um, was not a Christian. And in a recent interview that I found with him, he's now over 1,200 documents that are just studies of who Jesus is and conclusions uh, made by people outside of following Jesus Christ. He said of all of those documents, 98% agree that Jesus lived. And of that 98% that agree that Jesus is a historical, real human person by both biblical and non-biblical evidence, another 98% of those believe that he died at the hands of the Romans via crucifixion. So Jesus lived and Jesus died, and we'll talk about some of those proofs here in a little bit. And yet, we need to really do more than establish the fact that Jesus is a real human being, but you do need to start there. And to me, there's another claim that he made. <laughs> and it's something about him that is stuck and has made Christianity different throughout all of these years, and that is he claimed to rise again. He claimed to rise again. He said, I was going to, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And that claim and that belief is the center point of all of Christianity. And so, if you have your Bibles, open up to the, to the Gospel of Mark in verse 16, or chapter 16. Let's read what happened three days after his death. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, so they, for they were very, very afraid." See, it's this moment right here that separates the gospel message from any message the world has ever known. It separates Christianity from any other walk or religion because Christianity faces and claims to have overcome the one thing that absolutely none of us can control, and that is death. It claims to have given hope in the midst of that and eternal life beyond what we live here. Eternity with God. That's 2,000 years ago. You can't really prove that. How do we know this happened? Well, it's true. We can't prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt. Um, but we can show you this morning that it's a very plausible possibility. 
And from there, it's a matter of trusting in Christ. But there's a lot of reasonableness behind what we believe. And so, as we look at this, uh, I want to read uh, some verses to you this morning. It says this. This is written by Paul uh, about 20, 25 years or so after Jesus Christ was risen. And he says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then to be found false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. He goes on to say, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we, have, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so, in those verses, he tells us, you know what? We're fools. What a waste of a life. If we're following Jesus and he isn't risen from the grave, that's not really worth it. All the sacrifice that the scriptures call us to in the lifestyle, it's just not worth it. And it all boils down to whether he rose from the grave. If Christianity is true, it all hinges. This is the linchpin. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. That's the gospel message. He's telling them this is the first importance. The most important thing I can tell you is this happened with Jesus Christ. It is true. If it's not faith in him, giving money to a church, your time, your resources, your talents, planting a church is a giant waste of time. Why would we even go about doing it? C.S. Lewis says, the Christian story is the story of a grand miracle, one grand miracle. The assertion that being, the Christian assertion being that what was beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It's precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there's nothing specifically Christian that is left at all. (laughs) And to be honest, I've looked at this hard because if this isn't true, then I'm wasting my life. (laughs) Preaching and teaching and missionaries are wasting their life. It's just philanthropy, I guess. So plausibility and human reason is what we want to look at, but... We need to understand that that alone won't prove to anybody that Christ rose from the grave. Anybody can twist words and and believe what they would like. And yet, Peter, uh, through the Holy Spirit, encourages us that we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that is in you. And I hope you have that hope this morning. And if you don't, I, I pray that this begins to build a hope within you and a trust in God. Because faith is not a blind leap in the dark without any historical evidences or reasoning behind it. 
God's gracious. He's given us so much to cling to and to come up to that line where we say there's a lot of plausibility here, but are you going to cross that line of faith or are you going to step back and say, I just, I can't accept it. I can't follow Jesus Christ. I don't believe what he says. Now, as I've stated earlier, I mean, there's so many scholars done a tremendous job of defending uh, and helping us understand if Christ is risen. Uh, many of them have statements that they make. Many of them overlap. Uh, Norman Geisler, who we tend to are focusing on today, um, has t- a lot of statements he's made. I'm going to read to you 12 of them, and then we'll hone in on four of them this morning. He says this. He's 12 statements that he believes can be proven. He says, number one, Jesus lived and died by crucifixion. Number two, he was buried. Number three, his death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope, to scatter, really. Uh, Number four, the tomb was empty. It's probably the most contested one. Uh, Number five, the disciples had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. One of the most important proofs. Uh, The disciples were transformed from doubters to bold proclaimers, even willing to die. And the resurrection was the central message of their proclamation. And that hasn't changed, by the way, for 2,000 years. Um, They preached the resurrection message in Jerusalem. That's pretty important because that's where they were be persecuted the most. Uh, The church was born and grew as we know it. Orthodox Jews who believed in Christ switched and made Sunday their primary day of worship. That can be historically traced. And then James, the brother of Jesus, was converted to faith, and he was known as the family skeptic, and he became a leader in the early church. And finally, Paul was converted. A persecutor of the church became one of the greatest preachers and church planters of the early church. And so, within that, this morning, I want us to focus in on these four facts and talk about them. Jesus died by crucifixion. The disciples had experienced they believed were appearances. The disciples were transformed, and Paul, of all people, came to follow Jesus Christ. So, how do we know? Do we just say the Bible tells us so? Now, the Bible is an amazing document. You should just study the veracity and truth of the scriptures and how it all blends together with different authors over different periods of time and the Holy Spirit weaves it together the prophecies the the gospels these biographies of Jesus and yet did you know that uh, outside of the scriptures there are extra biblical writings from the time that attest to this man Jesus Christ and what was going on and I, I just want to, just so you see them and don't just hear them from my voice this morning, show you a few of those. So this is from Tiberius, the governor's uh, writings. Tacitus wrote, this historian wrote, uh, Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now skeptics would try and break apart every word and say, that's not Tacitus' style. I said, okay, fine. Well, then what about uh, this next one here? What about this one? Uh, Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teachings which he had given. And uh, this is a Syrian writer, and he's talking about Jesus, and he tells his own son to emulate Jesus, 
who gave his life. And so this document shows that this man believes in this historical figure, Jesus, or knows that he was there. And so uh, Josephus, one of the most well-known writers, uh, just within five years, uh, he was born within five years of Jesus. And if you look at historical writings, how early these are compared to the events, it's quite amazing. And so uh, you can see there where he talks about the crucifixion and how uh, it was reported by those people that people actually believe he appeared again and, and rose and talked to them. And then we see this, um, Thallus, a Samaritan writer, on the whole world presented, they're presented in most fearful darkness at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, if you read the scriptures, there's a period of darkness after he died, and there are other historical writings that say there was this eclipse, there was this darkness that came about us. And so um, we see that. And if we look at these, when we begin to walk through these, we begin to see that, okay, there are important historical documents that verify the existence of this peasant Jesus. The Gospels are among the best that are eyewitnesses to them, and we can verify their accuracy much more, if not so, than the writers we just quoted. And so Jesus is a man who lived, died, at the hand of the Romans, and that people immediately surrounding the time after his death began to declare, we've seen him, he has risen. Well, what evidence shows that the tomb was empty days later, and and the disciples believed they saw him? Well, I just listed here, these are some evidences that uh, many scholars point to. Uh, Early accounts, Acts was written early on, Corinthians was written early on, the Jewish book uh, refers to Jesus, says his body was removed, the Gospel of Matthew, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and the Jews admitted the tomb was empty. And for those who were the enemy of Christ, uh, those who were against and began to persecute, for them to admit that and to be angry about it is a very strong logical proof. And even how the Gospels, are written early on, begin to refer to women as the witnesses. You don't see this. In fact, in all of Jesus' ministry, his treatment of women was against all course cultural norms. He was willing to sit and speak with them as equals and to care about them as people, to sit and talk to the woman at the well, despite all she had been through, to have women sitting at his feet and traveling in their group following him. He elevated them in radical ways, going against the culture. And for them to point to them as a witness, we know that their witness didn't even count in the courtrooms. And yet the Gospels use this as their primary proof. If they, if they were wanting to give us something that would have been more believable as a myth, I don't believe they would have chosen to share it in that way. But they shared it in that way because that's the way it happened. Because that's who discovered the empty tomb. And so, it's amazing for us to look at that and, and to wonder uh, what is going on. And we ask, well, then did, did Jesus appear? Well, in the Gospels, we see his appearances had this physicality about him. He was in their presence and doubting Thomas, right? Look at the hands and the holes. And, and he ate. He ate food. And yet there was something that about him where they didn't immediately recognize him in his glorified state. Something different about him being risen from the grave. And yet it was indeed Jesus. 
The Gospels declare, as uh, Paul would go on to say in Corinthians, and as we read, that Jesus met with people while they were alone, with a small handful of people, with a group of 12 or more, and an assembly of hundreds. He met in formal places. He met over a meal in a home, on a countryside, at work, in the middle of a busy city were the appearances of Jesus Christ. And so as we move from this, we began to see that uh, the disciples were transformed. They were transformed. <laughs> they, they went from hiding and being ashamed of Jesus, uh, denying Jesus, to coming and being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and they go out and they begin to proclaim and preach. I mean, they are put on trial. We see uh, followers of Christ with Stephen being stoned, and they began to declare this message, whatever the cost. They're all in on it. They have no doubts in their mind. They have been transformed and changed and write the Gospels and share and encourage and invite others to dig into who Jesus is. And they began to get a following and people are changed and they're baptized and the church begins to slowly grow and people begin to come to Christ and try to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in this new covenant. And their impact and their writings and their imprint on human history says this is a movement that happened. In spite of persecution from the Jews and then from the Romans, from the Romans, I've been in the Colosseum to see what they did to the early Christians. It's horrifying. And yet in the midst of all of that, this man Saul, the man who stood there, well, a crowd picked up rocks and stoned a disciple named Stephen. People came to honor this man by putting cloaks at their feet after murdering a man in the streets. This man, feared by Christians, was encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He appeared to him, and his life was completely and utterly changed. And he goes around sharing this gospel. And Professor Gary Habermas says this, if we start with the cross at about 30 AD, call that ground zero for Christianity, um, in 1 Corinthians 15 checks in at about 55 AD, 25 years later, um, we see uh, that Paul is declaring this. And in ancient historiography, he says this is incredible. He says, think of Alexander the Great. The best known biography of him uh, is that of Plutarch, almost 400 years um, afterwards. And we will learn about Caesar, um, the early Caesars from Tacitus to Suetonius. Is a good gap is about 100 years. So 25 years is incredible for Jesus to have writings and documents about what he teached, about the fact that he is resurrected and so, is he risen? <laughs> That's a question that we all have to wrestle with. Is he risen? Have we showed that this is somewhat plausible? I think we can show it's plausible that Jesus Christ is a historical human being. I think it's, it's plausible that we can say he died on a cross. And I think it's plausible that we can say something happened 
to change all of these lives. And that something is that they believed he rose from the grave. And none of us were there or saw or have seen him. And Jesus said, blessed are those who haven't seen me, who didn't live in this time period and yet still believe. So the issue is faith. The issue is taking Jesus at his word. Will we repent, trust in Jesus Christ, and follow him? That's the response we're called to make to all of this. And if we're to reach the world, the central truth we must proclaim is that Jesus is risen. Have you stepped across that line of faith? What made you step across that line of faith? What did you understand? Maybe you're just considering it this morning. Peter tells us that to put your faith in Jesus Christ is to be born again to a living hope. It's a living hope because we believe that we're made for more than this. We're going to talk about that next week as we look at the vision of this church. But a living hope that death has been overcome, that Jesus is indeed alive, that he changes lives, and that he transforms our our identity and our perspective and our purpose in life. For over 2,000 years, we have testimony after testimony after testimony of people coming to Christ, having their hearts renewed, having their homes renewed, putting their life in a different trajectory, becoming more patient, kind, joyful, hope-filled. It's quite amazing. That's the power of the gospel, and we can't underlie it. And we love to say in this church, we say our vision for our first five years is one. We want to become one church. But we centered that whole thing around the scriptures in Luke 15. It says the lady goes out, finds her coin, and celebrates. The lost sheep is found, and there's a celebration, because heaven celebrates more over one righteous sinner who comes to that line of faith, steps across, and says, I believe. Jesus died for my sins, and he is risen again. There's a party in heaven. And every time we see that in this church, we want to celebrate. And I don't know about you, but when I hear about that, it just gives me goosebumps. And so even right now, we have a man that's out. Let's see here. Lucy, where's Steve this morning? Sri Lanka? Yeah. And he texted me this morning from Sri Lanka. And uh, I told him, you've got great timing. This man right here is trapped in the Hindu religion, worshiping gods, wearing trinkets. They have God for everything. And this morning, earlier in Steve's ministry with his partners there, this man denounced that, cut off all of his idols, and followed Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that amazing? Here out of this little church, there's a man following Christ who believes he's ridden from the dead, has gone across and freed someone from this bondage of multiplicity of gods who he's trying to please. And to cut those off is huge in their culture. And it's not combining Jesus with everything else. It's saying, no, I believe in Jesus. I'm getting rid of the old. I have a living hope in Jesus Christ. And that has happened even today. Someone has crossed that line of faith. Unbelievable. That's what we get to be a part of with Jesus Christ. You know, it's amazing as we we look at this story and we've walked through the Gospel of Mark. We've been in it for a while. 
Um, and this is what we came out with, the very first message, all in, Mark's gospel. We said that because this guy Mark went on a missions trip with Paul, and he's going along with Paul and Barnabas. He said, this is too much, and for whatever reason, he just bailed on him. And Paul is pretty upset, so much so that he and Barnabas argued later on, I don't want Mark back with us, he's a quitter. And, and then later on we see Mark writes a gospel. Paul declares him useful. And at some point he said, you know what, I'm all in for Jesus. We said, that's our challenge. It's, if we believe this guy rose from the grave, are we all in? And we understand here that all in looks different in different seasons of life. It's a heart attitude. It's a perspective. It's something I have to remind myself during the week. It's like, if Jesus is alive, then how do I need to approach this today? So often it's hard to remember the resurrection or, or the power of it. We live as if we haven't been transformed. We live as if our identity isn't in Christ, as if what the Bible declares isn't true. We don't walk in that power of the Holy Spirit. We don't embrace it sometimes. And so perhaps being all in today starts with a, a confession, a prayer, and a move in obedience towards the Lord. Or maybe it, it starts with saying, Lord, I need to trust you. I need to go and share my faith. Maybe it's praising him this morning. That's just where you need to start. It doesn't mean that we all stop and become missionaries. And we don't even see that in the Gospels. We see these people chosen and called to lead the movement. But in these cities, there were men who had been going to the brothel every week. And they stopped, followed Christ, and came home and were a dad who was present in their family. That's all in. You see, women who began to worship him and share about him and pass him on to the next generation. In the Gospels, we read of Timothy, who was led to faith and grounded in becoming a leader in the church because of his mom and grandma. That's two women who are all in. Everybody has a different role to play. But are our hearts Lord, the Lord's and just open hands saying, Lord, use me how you will in this day, in this moment in this life, all in for Jesus Christ because he is risen and he is worth it. He is of first importance, as Paul said. He is the one that wants to take you and he wants us to battle sin. He wants us to pray expectantly. He loves us more than we can imagine. And this gives us hope that is living and active. And when we say discover joy, we're not saying discover the easiest life possible. We're saying discover joy in the midst of the worst things you're facing because there's hope beyond this, because God is in control. And trust me, I know that's harder on ground zero when we're in spiritual battles than it is to say it. It's harder to live it. And I deal with that tension as well. But when we come together in community and deal with that and we say we're all in for Christ, something happens and the light begins to shine and the world begins to wonder, why is there hope? Why is it I can sit with the Lee family after this long, arduous battle and just see in their eyes hope and joy in the midst of losing a loved one, knowing we'll see them again? Because Jesus Christ is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are risen. 
it's one of the most amazing proclamations and claims in all of history. And not only is it plausible, but my heart is convinced it's real. I thank you for being merciful enough to us to give us tangible evidence to hold on to when our minds struggle with what we see in this world. Giving us clear historical evidences and writings and documents that show Jesus walked this earth. Satan tries to blind us to that at every turn. Tries to erase it from the history books. But your imprint is on human hearts. Testimonies of lives changed. So we praise you for that. And I pray for this young man even today that came to know you. May Steve and the partners be able to root him and not let that seed be stolen. May we be rooted, not let that seed be stolen. May we be good students of you, ready to defend the faith, not because it's some blind leap or some myth like a movie, but because you're real and you change lives. And we have to hold that truth so humbly, Lord, in this culture, but we don't have to hide or be ashamed from it. And so, Lord, I pray you give us boldness and courage and yet a sense of hope and peace this morning because of what we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.